Hey everybody, welcome to the 111th episode of the JDO Show. I'm your host, J. David Osborne, and today on the show we have Rose O'Keefe, head honcho, editor-in-chief, jack-of-all-trades over at Eraserhead Press, the very, very first bizarro publisher. This episode is full of great advice about how to be a writer, how to manage expectations, and just kind of about like what makes an interesting book that people actually want to buy. Rose is full of that kind of good information. I was really happy that she was able to come on the show. So without further ado, please do enjoy this 111th episode of the JDO Show featuring Rose O'Keefe. Rose, thank you so much for coming on the JDO Show. Great to be here. You are, what is the exact title, publisher-in-chief of Eraserhead Books. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yes, I'm the publisher, owner, head editor, Eraserhead Press. See, yeah. there's a lot of slashes, yeah, so I didn't know exactly. You're basically the head honcho. You, you have run, right. you've steered the ship. Um, so I kind of wanted to, for, I'm, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are familiar with Eraserhead Press, but I was wondering if, uh, sort of starting out, if you wouldn't mind giving a sort of like capsule explanation of what it is that Eraserhead Press does, and then we can kind of get into the whole history of the thing. Sure. Eraserhead Press is an independent publishing company that focuses on bizarro fiction. We were founded in 1999, and uh, we operate under main line of books plus uh, several imprints, which are Deadite Press, Fungasm Press, and the new Bizarro Author series. Cool. So you said you started in 1999. Now, how, how, did, that, how did that sort of come, come together? Well, uh, back in the day, it started out as a collective of authors. And I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but um, there were six authors and they all got together under this umbrella Eraserhead Press with the intent to edit, produce, lay out, publish, promote each other's work. And they would all profit share from it. So the author would get 50% of the royalties and then all the other helpers, you know, the other five people would get 10%. And um, then after their books came out, they would pass the torch on to the next batch of six authors was the idea. Um, so that was the Eraserhead Press Collective. And in fact, in its earliest days, it was a chapbook press where uh, the books were just hand-stapled pamphlets that were produced on the cheap by uh, making friends with the night shift at, at the copy shop and um, selling them online. And then uh, we also had an online magazine called The Dream People. Um, but eventually, in 2001, branched into print-on-demand publishing, and that's really where the, the collective coalesced, and those six books were produced. All the spines lined up and created the Eraserhead logo if you put them all next to each other on cool. the shelf. And um, Yeah, so there was one book in particular that, that gained success out of that. It was Satanburger by Carl Tomelic III, and um, the, the collective did okay but those guys friendships were strained by um constantly thinking that everyone else should be doing more for them and there was no real leadership so i was kind of on the sidelines i was reading the books and i got i got interested in these authors because they were putting out uh 
they were writing fiction that I had never seen before. Mm-hmm. And it was something that was, um, it wasn't horror. It wasn't science fiction. It wasn't fantasy. It, it was, it, it was all of those things combined. And what it was, was really weird. And uh, I saw the collective starting to fall apart and didn't want to see that happen because I was like, this actually, there's something here. There's nothing like this out there being published and uh so i was an aspiring entrepreneur i was interested in small press publishing i love to read i love books and i decided to uh propose that they let me take take over the publishing company you know become the publisher so that there was actually someone in charge who was locking down all the business aspects of it and um letting them just get back to doing what they did best, which was writing. Uh, So they had acquired some debt. I paid off the debt and assumed leadership of the company. And then from that time, um, started taking it into new directions. At first, what I did was uh, I gathered a new new group of people, a new team, and we were dividing up duties that way. Um, We put out more books. We you know, got along okay, but it, it's like Eraserhead has had a long history now after 19 years, different staff changeover, different approaches to publishing, but we have stuck with print-on-demand since 2001, and uh, then we got into ebooks probably around 2011. The term bizarro fiction was what really kind of gave us new life in around 2005, so when I was talking about how I was seeing these authors doing new groundbreaking mm-hmm. work that wasn't being published anywhere, it was because it was being rejected for being too weird. And uh, so there were a, a couple other publishers at the same time who were interested in the same sort of work that I was. And we got to talking about it. And then, uh, you know, it seemed like because we were all like-minded, whenever we found ourselves online or in person, we would collect together. It was just like magnetism. And we started having conversations about what this was and how we might uh, explain it more clearly to an audience. And one of the authors that was on uh, Raw Dog Screaming Press came out and said, hey, uh, you know, what do we call this thing? Because it was really a movement happening in literature and um, we were all punk kids that were kind of against like movement ideas. I don't know. It just seems like you don't want to be up your own ass about stuff. But on the other hand, uh, we were trying to reach an audience and better connect with people and needed a marketing term. And then we discussed some terms and uh, threw out ideas. There was, Gosh, uh, big discussion about it. Um, I don't remember all the stupid names that were thrown out, but one of them that I do recall, it was sausage fiction, which was <laughs> super stupid. Um, there were like Gonzo, Goo, I don't know, yeah. goofy names. But uh, ultimately, we came up with the term bizarro and all agreed that that really did kind of in a word describe this work that we were doing. Yeah. and uh, embraced it and started putting File Under Bizarro on the back of our books. We created a catalog where we 
showed off which books we considered were bizarro fiction. We started an online community, a website, and that was, um, so rather than being a collective as a company, we kind of became collective as a community. Mm -hmm. So each of us had our own companies, but we were working together in cooperation to grow a genre. And now, you know, years later, when I talk to people about bizarro fiction, they actually do know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember when, uh, I think, I think I was, um, I want to say I was 17. So that would have been 2003, I think. Was that around, because of the way that I found Bizarro was I was on a message board for the band uh, Dog Fashion Disco, which is kind of like a Mr. Bungle, weird sort of carnival circus rock type thing. And they had linked to uh, the Mondo Bizarro Forum. And that was kind of my introduction. So the Mondo, yep. it was like kid, oh, kids these days. No, I'm not going to say that. Um, <laughs> but message boards used to be like a thing, <laughs> you know, and you would go, you'd have your little avatar and you would just chat with people. And I think that that's how I met Carlton Mellick and Jeremy Robert Johnson. I think Cameron Pierce was on there at the time. And I just remember, I think the first book, the first book that I read was Angel Dust Apocalypse by Jeremy Robert Johnson. And then I got... The Menstruating Mall by Carlton Mellick III. And I was just like, for me, as a kid who was already into weird shit, I was like, this, oh, this is, this is perfect. Yeah. Why, why has this not existed before? You know? So that's, and that kind of, in a way, uh, changed my whole life. Because I always knew that I wanted to write, but I didn't know what exactly I wanted to write. And I think that that's, I think it's done that for a lot of people, actually, you know, like they find this thing and they're like, this, this, this is, this is my community. Right. And that's what I think yeah. has been so great about uh, Eraserhead. Just, you know, to throw you a compliment. I mean, I, I feel like it's not, it's more than like a press to me. It's actually more like a, it is a community. Like when you mentioned that it started out as a community, I think that that has like been the thing that's kind of like, that's the through line of the whole of the press's almost 20 year existence, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's something that is really important to me personally is that sense of community because um, that's what I was looking for, still am looking for, and I'm open to embracing people in, you mm -hmm. know? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So Mondo Bizarro Forum, yes, I, I was the one that started that forum. Right. And, uh, so were you part of those conversations back there, uh, like around 2005? No, or no I wasn't. I wasn't a remember part of that. No, I wasn't a oh, part okay. of any conversation. I was pretty much just a, just fan uh, status at that point. And I was I think I was posting short stories on there that actually um, Jeremy kind of took to and then started talking to me. And that's how I ended up uh, having my first book on Swallowdown was just through that, hey. those, those interactions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, and I think it's, I think that thinking of Eraserhead as this, because we also, I guess for, for folks who might not know, every year uh, you host the BizarroCon at Edgefield yep. in Portland. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was wondering if you could maybe talk about how that evolved and how that kind of has, has helped the press and how that's like a really great community builder. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, actually, 
that evolved out of that community that was online during that time. Um, the Mondozaro Forum was the first kind of forum that we had that was our own. And then we started Bizarro Central, the website. Um, and that had a forum of its own for a while. But uh, we would frequently meet up with each other at mostly horror conventions, but other events like film festivals and comic cons and stuff like that. And whenever we were at those events, uh, we would, we had our own magnetism, really. It was like mm -hmm. critical mass where, you know, you, you kind of can spot the people that are a little different than everyone else. And it, and it has to do with their energy and um, enthusiasm for stuff that's, that's weird and different. And, and uh, you know, there's a curiosity inherent in that. So, you know, we were curious about each other, we'd hang out, and I started organizing, like, um, parties and, and um, meetings and group outings, like, you know, I'd always set up some sort of outing where we'd all go out to dinner or drinks or something like that, and uh, I'd throw room parties and make homebrew and stuff like that. So, uh, eventually, though, it just kind of we started thinking about those conventions and how there was thing, there were things that we liked about the conventions mm -hmm. and there were things that we didn't like, like, um, you know, we liked when people would really talk about writing, but not when people would be on panels just to advertise themselves or call attention to yeah. what book they've written or try to, uh, you know, work some sort of social angle in that way. And we liked when, we could, uh, you know, we liked performing and involving audiences and showing off our skills because everybody was um, a little more theatrical than your average person who was mm -hmm. reading. Yeah. And, you know, so we didn't like boring readings. We liked performance art events. And we would, we would go and we'd do these things that other conventions still do. But... Uh, decided to create our own event, BizarroCon, in Portland, where we could basically dispense with all the bullshit stuff that we didn't like about other conventions and really focus on our community and and um, and promoting the things that that would help us grow and, and workshopping those performance readings and doing, um, you know, ha having skilled writers give writing workshops to teach us the exact stuff that we needed to learn. You know, I, I, as a book publisher, I would look at the writers that I was working with. I would look at the submissions that I was receiving and um, I would think, okay, there's some skill lacking in this area. Mm -hmm. Who can mm -hmm. we bring in to talk specifically about this? Yeah. And uh, so that, that's been really fun. And then as far as, it being good for the company, um, that's like s sort of secondary to my mind. You know, what I'm really interested in was, was, uh, interacting with, with other like-minded people and creating stuff together and getting us all together in person because that's so valuable. And it just brings a lot of joy to my life whenever I interact with other creative, passionate people. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, you know, when I want something like that to happen, I go ahead and to do something about it and create something and uh so yeah and we would it would mo it started out the first year was only 25 people yeah and half of them were from 
Scotland and a few of them I had to go and pick up in my own car just to get <laughs> yeah. them to get out there. Right, right, uh, right. And now it's not as if like it, I would say it's, it's at 110 people now, but it's not the growth that I was interested in because actually where we have it can only hold about 110 people. Yeah. So it's still a small community, but every year there's different people and we have people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And that's been really exciting to see because um, it's, I mean, it always blows me away when people are traveling from Italy and Spain and Ireland and mm -hmm. Brazil to come to Portland and to talk to people about bizarro fiction. But um, it's been a really fulfilling experience for them from what I've heard. And it's been fulfilling for me because it's really great to make those connections and to, uh, yeah. And to just get this, get these people to connect. Yeah. There's a real synergy too, between the energy of the Bizarro community and the energy of Edgefield where it takes place because Edgefield yeah. is this sort of uh, haunted what was it? It was kind of a, sen a home for seniors, but before that, I think it was a plantation, and now it's a hotel, and it's uh, done by McMenamins, who, um, correct me if I'm wrong, they sort of, they buy up these kind of old abandoned buildings around the Portland area and turn them into really cool breweries, essentially, right? Because uh, there's, yeah. like the, there's like the Kennedy School, which was a elementary school that's now a cool brewery. There's Edgefield, there's there's tons. There's there was one that I went to, I think, with Kevin Maloney and Cameron that was out uh like way out in east uh east of Portland somewhere, like in a, on a farm almost. <clears throat> but to get back to my original point, yeah, I think that both Bizarro, the Bizarro community and Edgefield have sort of like I feel like fed each other in a really sort of healthy way because when you when it gets together, you can sort of you can feel something happening. And you know that I'm kind of like, I'm a very sort of what you might call a woo-woo person. I'm all about like energies and magic and stuff like that. And I do think that that was just a really, it's a good place to have that convention. It wouldn't work in like a four seasons somewhere, you know? Oh, no, I know. It's so, that's why I said that it's not even about growing it bigger than it is because there's some magic. I can't imagine it anywhere else. And I chose that location specifically because of how unique and charming it is. It's, it's, it's also a similar ethos or perspective that we have on art and community. So I really respect the, the McMiniman brothers for the, the work that they put into those properties. And um, they have really great food and beer and wine and and they make their own spirits, but also they have local artists come mm -hmm. and decorate all of the, all of the buildings. And there's all these little like hidden, you know, like painted clown faces on the joints <laughs> in the pipes or like yeah. hidden murals, you know, inside a cupboard in your room or there's mosaic, tile mosaics and giant sculptures. And it's, it's kind of a down the rabbit hole experience there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you, when you go to a Bizarro Con, it's one of those things too, where, you know, people stay up late and they play music and, mm -hmm. you know, there's great beer and everybody's like, there's just little groups of people who haven't, who have known each other online and are meeting for the first time. There's people who've known each other for decades. There's people, you know, there's just all this like cross pollination sort of going on. And, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful thing, and I think that I think that people who are sort of interested as as writers, especially, you know, maybe you know, if Bizarro isn't necessarily your thing, that's fine. But I think that 
creating and establishing like cool little conventions, I think is a, is a, it's something that I'm surprised more people haven't sort of hopped on, I guess, because you can attest to this. I'm sure that it's logistically difficult, right? It's, it's challenging. I mean, it's a lot of work to put it together and I'm lucky that I have a good team of people and a, and a growing community here in Portland that helps me out every year. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's so great. One of the best things when I was talking about, you know, dispensing with stuff that we didn't like about conventions and just focusing on the things that we did like the difference of, uh, Bizarro Con versus other things is that we aren't just talking about being creative. We actually are creating things together mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. event. So it's very much a moment in time. You know, the, the connections that are established, they uh, extend out in, and through time and space. But um, in that one ephemeral moment, it's really about everybody being present and focusing on um, creating something together. And there's such a, a refreshing feeling that you get out of that when when you come away from it, you know, because I think that in our lives as creative people, we need those events that kind of mark a culmination of, of um, I don't know, they're like ecstatic moments in our life, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that uh, that's such an important thing for people, again, writers, publishers, whoever, artists in general, we can get so bogged down with the, business side of creativity which is a real thing um and something that i think that you're you're very tuned into but you know it's the yin and yang type thing where you just we can't forget the reasons why i was thinking about this i'm sorry for the digression but i was thinking about this the other day and i was working on putting together a book and i was also working on my own writing and i was thinking to myself oh i'm like really enjoying myself and this sounds bad, but I hadn't been enjoying myself for a while because I've been so stressed out by that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm rambling. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, actually, you're making a really good point because it's something that you constantly have to remind yourself and renew that enthusiasm for what you're doing. And I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, one of the things that I tell my staff whenever we are about to do something is you know and and if people are stressed out and they have a lot on their mind and there's a lot of little details to work out or whatever um i always tell them no matter what just have fun Mm -hmm. because if you're having fun other people will have fun and it comes through. I mean, when you're talking about energy that comes through in your work, if Mm -hmm. the writer is enjoying writing and enjoying what they're doing um, and interested in enjoying communicating that with others, they're going to feel it. Mm -hmm. It's going to come through the language. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And I think that that kind of comes back in in a very interesting way because I've been trying to put a finger on what it is that, uh, you know, I look for what it is that you look for in a book. And I think that, there's maybe some people have this sort of misconception about what, you know, good writing actually is. I think that people go to school for it. They, you know, they get MFAs. No shade against MFAs. That's your thing. Totally fine. But I do think that you can feel, even in a book that might not be, you know, what the Iowa workshops would classify as good, 
you can feel an energy that I would take, you know, three times over one quote unquote well-written book. You know what I mean? Um, and I don't really know how you transfer that energy other than just sort of having fun while you're doing it. It's a very strange thing. It's like it gets baked into it in a way. Yeah, well, it kind of reminds me, I mean, I come from like punk rock movement, you know, and it's like punk bands, just kids who pick up instruments and want to play and you feel their passion, you know, they might not be any good at playing those instruments at first, but the passion comes through and it's a good time. You know, they're having a good time. I'm having a good time. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes as a publisher, that that type of thing is something that is even more essential than um, well-crafted prose. You know, mm -hmm. if a book has that sort of energy to it, then it, there's something worthwhile there. And I, I look for and I'm open to that kind of work because I, I sort of continuing with the music analogy, I think of myself as like a club owner or, prom or promoter, you know, band promoter mm -hmm. or something. And, you know, I want people in my club to, ha to enjoy themselves and to get a wide range of experiences. And it could be people on stage that are, you know, less experienced at the craft, but have a lot of energy and enthusiasm and joy for what they're doing right. to people who are, you know, well-honed, virtuos, virtuos, jeez, can't you say mean. the word, <laughs> <laughs> virtuosos. There you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if, if someone is telling a great story, that that is so much more important than, you know, maybe if they're able to put together a really beautiful sentence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I read this really, really fantastic book um, called Story Genius recently. Because I, mm. I, I, have you read Story Genius? Mm -mm. Okay, so it's it's basically this idea. Uh, the author she talks about uh, in the first chapter um, why Fifty Shades of Grey is so popular, and she specifically says. If you ask almost anybody who's read that book, they will tell you that it's one of the worst written books that they've ever read. And she's like, so why did it sell 100 million copies? And she goes into like, and this is what the whole book is about, is that, um, you know, story is not plot, you know, story is, yeah. you know, you take this character and, and they have a past and then basically they have something that they want and then they're changed by an event and how are they going to get through that? Um and, oh, man, I kind of just rambled and I got off the track. But basically... I love it. I, I think that sounds like a great read, and I agree with that. It's funny when you mention Fifty Shades of Grey because it's true. That book is, is terrible. I've, I've, uh, I mean, the writing is, is not great, but I read all of those books. Exactly. So that's what everybody go. says. Yeah, that's what everybody yeah. says. It's like, it was bad, and I, and I, I kind of <laughs> hated myself for reading it, but like I couldn't yeah. get it down. Yeah, and I, I think that we... And think, that's intrinsically, there's something good there. You know, I think mm -hmm. some people get confused when, mm -hmm. you know, when they, uh, well, especially writers, because writers are really uh, focused on looking at the, the writing mm -hmm. and oftentimes... Uh, lose sight of what it is to be just a regular reader who's enjoying a good story. Oh, that's exactly it. Thank, thank readers you for... are, you know, they forgive a lot when it comes yeah. to that. If you're if you're telling a good story, just like we are, like stumbling over our words and going off in different tangents and stuff. I mean, 
if we were to write this down, we would not write it in this way, but people are probably, hopefully, high, still engaged with what we're saying right. because <laughs> we're, you know, we're interested in what we're talking about. Right, right, right. No, that yeah, and the energy is good. And th that actually, you reminded me of what I was trying to get at at first, and it's what you said. It's that, um, yeah, it's just that, like, well-written does not equal entertaining, you know? And I was thinking about this a lot because I was, I was starting to pick up these books that um, had been that had sort of buzz within the kind of indie press uh, scene. And so I would pick up a few of them and I would start reading them and I, you know, I'd get a, two pages in and I think, man, this is beautiful writing. Wow. This person can just turn a phrase, this metaphor. And I would give up like 10 pages in and then I'd pick up like, you know, this, you know, paperback sci-fi from like the sixties with like a muscle man on the cover with a laser gun. And I would like read that in an hour. So there's something going on there. There's like a dissonance uh -huh. there, you know? And I think that uh, yeah. Bizarro really kind of taps into that too because Bizarro 100%, fun is always, well, not always, I'm generalizing, but it seems like fun is the main energy and readability. Um, that's what I've learned anyway from talking to, you know, writers in the community that, you know, I really respect. The one through line that I see from you and through all of them is that it's like we are trying to tell a fun story first and then... Yeah, and fun could be completely heartbreaking, devastating, and awful. There you go. Uh, you know, it just depends on your definition of fun. Yeah. I also think that what you're hitting on is something I, I've thought a lot about when it comes to... There's people who are good at story craft and there's people that are good at word craft and, ho and hopefully you want both mm -hmm. in your book. I mean, that's what I'm looking for in the books that I publish are people who are, are good wordsmiths and good story crafters. But, uh, but sometimes the scales can be tipped one way or the other. And you have people who are, are great at putting together beautiful sentences, but they mean nothing on the total. Mm. And then there's people who are great at telling a story, but the language is clunky or, or um, unrefined. Mm -hmm. So, and I, and I think that, those are stages too that people can go through. Like it when in our modern age of publishing, it's relatively cheap and easy to get books printed. So uh, things come out on a lot faster pace basis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sometimes things are topically relevant, so you want to push that book out now versus three years from now, and um, that means that who knows? I mean. Some people have spent years crafting a book, and some people spend a few weeks doing it. Um, I, I really don't know when I receive submissions how long it took somebody to write something, mm -hmm. so it's kind of irrelevant to me. It's uh, you know mostly about have they successfully hooked me and kept me reading from beginning to end. Yeah. And the audience that I am trying to reach with our work are people who, you know, don't want to waste their time on crap. There's a lot of other better things they could be doing with their time. Yeah. So it's kind of essentially part of my job to filter that out and say, like, here, in my opinion, this really hooked me and kept me going. Mm -hmm. And so if you've trusted my opinion, give it a try because it might yeah. work for you. Yeah, that is interesting. That is that is what publishers in chief sort of are they're, they're, a big part of it is being a tastemaker 
and saying, hey, if you trusted me about these, you might like these, you know, which is uh, interesting yeah. with your imprints, too, because, you know, you have Deadite. And so you have, hey, mm -hmm. if you like Jeff's taste in things, you'll like this. And then you ha have, a, a, you know, Cameron did Lazy Fascist. So, hey, if you're more of a Cameron type person, you know, you can go this direction, too. And I think that's that's the value in in imprints. So, um, um, yeah, yeah, that's how I see it, too. Yeah. So I wanted to also kind of talk about because, um, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the positive energy and the and the good stuff. Um, you have always, to me, seemed to be a person who is really good at dealing with bad energy and negative energy, which is sure to arise as in any community. Um, you know, there will be problems, issues. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk about how you deal, because this is something that we uh, Michael and I talked about and Ben and I talked about how you sort of deal with maybe authors that are problematic to put it delicately oh i th i think i understand what you're saying it's it i mean there is a lot of managing expectations that goes on in the job thank, of, thank you, yes. of being a publisher yeah um and so it's just creating relationships with people really that's the key thing and uh, like any relationship that you're going to enter into, hopefully it starts from a place of, of uh, genuine curiosity, interest, and appreciation for another person. So uh, that's kind of our baseline. I know that when I enter into a relationship with an author where they're going to trust me with their work, then there's an understanding between us that we... Uh, respect and value each other's opinions mm -hmm. and um, so th then it's just a man matter of maintaining that through action and it's a two-way street you know mm -hmm. so if a, an author wants to have a good relationship with me then um, hopefully they respect my my time my opinion my uh, approach you know because that's why they got involved with me in the first place is that they thought that I could do something good for their book. Mm -hmm. And uh, likewise, those are the intentions that I have going into it. So it's, I let them know as we go along, you know, where I feel like we're managing things well. When you have those kind of constant communications, when you're open to discussion about things, of course, people are going to have moments where they get a bad review and they feel discouraged or they are upset at their sales ranking mm -hmm. or, um, you know, some, something isn't the, the happiest thing that could ever happen to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so it's about helping nurture them through those moments and uh, see the bigger picture and focus on putting their energy into something that can help improve the situation. Mm -hmm. um, so I like to, I mean, yeah, a lot of times I've found myself feeling like a counselor or a therapist in my yeah. relationships with authors. And over the time, over time I've had to really um, think, of, think more clearly about my boundaries mm -hmm. in those situations. Right. Because, because uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes I'm I'm the first person they call when their girlfriend breaks up with them, or their dog dies, or they're, uh, you know, or they get that bad review or something, you know. But I'm also the person that they call when something exciting happens, and they 
have been interviewed on something or they want been nominated for an award or, you know, got fan mail. And, uh, so we go through the highs and lows together. Right. Yeah. And it seems, it seems like what you're saying is that in a way you're kind of a repository for extreme emotions, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not normally a, a call that's like, Hey Rose, what's what's up how are you you know it's rose guess what this is so cool or <laughs> rose <laughs> i want to die <laughs> you know like that yeah kind of yeah i mean uh, it depends on the level of professionalism that the person has too sure. you know i mean some people some people are uh my best friends and other people we just deal with money and business interactions and mm. that's totally fine Usually we can navigate any kind of differences of opinion pretty effectively. So you jumped on to uh, POD pretty early. I mm -hmm. think that you might have been the first person that I saw actually doing that. Um, that was kind of the thing that enabled... Would you say that that was a major uh, um, factor in Eraserhead Press's success, its ability to do POD? Yes. And, yes, and and it was new technology at the time. There were not a lot of small press publishers doing it, and what I saw around me was most of the small press publishers were focused on limited edition, um, hard hardback books. Mm -hmm. So they were collectors' items, and you know they would cost fifty dollars or more, and they were a small print run. And those things are beautiful, and I, I have a lot of appreciation for those projects. But there's a part of me that just felt like it was such a pity that only 150 people or 200 people were ever going to be able to read this work. Mm -hmm. And with um, print-on-demand, you know, as many thousands of people possible could read the work, and we could keep the price down too mm -hmm. so um i was more interested in getting you know more books out there that were uh cheaper and stuff than i was to focus on very specialized expensive projects so print on demand was definitely the catalyst for being able to do that and it has been really interesting uh, it has been really interesting to watch how print on demand has evolved in our publishing industry the quality of the books has improved over time there's more than one printer out there doing it and um, and and now you know major big five publishers are printing their backlists through POD mm. so I didn't even know that that's that's really yeah. interesting I guess that makes sense though I mean why why wouldn't you at that point so having jumped on that technology uh, early are there where do you kind of see this thing going do you feel like you've kind of hit a, a good stride is there anything that you see now that you'd sort of like to jump on where do you kind of what what's going on in your head as to where you're going to take eraserhead press moving forward yeah i've stuck with print on demand mm -hmm. we also do ebooks i know um Several of our authors have done audiobook projects, mm. but that's not through us. That's separate. Um, and as far as personally where I want to go, I think I'm I'm really 
comfortable in the lane that I'm in. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to continue doing paperbacks and eBooks. Um, but I'm curious about branching into other media. Mm. So I would, uh, you know, I'm interested in having our books adapted to film and talking to more filmmakers and, and, you know, maybe being on the production end of something like that or um, getting involved in, in other, I mean, we do already, we do like live performance events and, um, and any kind of like artistic collaborations with other people. So, uh, you know, whether it be visual art or music or um, film or any of that, like that's, I was, what I usually tell people about myself is, is that my main passion or my main goal is to live a life surrounded by creative, passionate people. And so that's kind of my guiding light when it comes to the, the activities that I get involved in. And I do things other than publishing. I also am a home brewer. I dance Argentine tango and ecstatic dance. I, I knit. I uh, play music. I do all kinds of things. And, um, and one thing that publishing allows me to do is to interact with all, all sorts of different creative people. So, you know, I, I appreciate my relationships that I have with artists who are designing our book covers just as, uh, just as much as the people that are writing the books. Um, you know, those, those different kind of connections and, and playgrounds for me to collaborate with people are really exciting. So I don't know if I can really like part any pearls of wisdom about how I see the future of publishing or where things are going. Cause I, I'm not somebody that follows trends. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely do look at practical business matters and envision the type of, uh, the type of things that I want to invest my money in. But, um, but what satisfies me m the most is just being able to, uh, to interact with creative people. So, yeah. So, oh, by the way, I should have said this up top, but, uh, congratulations on the specialty press award. That was really cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah. That was a real surprise to receive and, and a great honor. And it's, um, it, you know, I've been involved in the horror community for a long time. I've never been a member of the Horror Writers Association. Um, and I've always kind of felt like I was pitching my tent over on the edge of, of their field. Uh, so it's it's really an honor to be embraced in, in that way. I, it's so funny that I think of when you said pitching the tent, it made me just envision this, you know, town of, you know, uh, very you know upright people and then there's like a literal tent just outside with like weed smoke billowing out of it like carnival tent yeah. <laughs> some acrobats <laughs> and still walkers yeah <laughs> get your bizarro fiction over here and there's like a there's like a kid like at the window looking out and the, the kid's mom is like don't look at, don't look at the tent <laughs> oh my god that's actually happened to us at events really like little kid oh yeah at conventions like where we're tabling Mm -hmm. um but we had one time this mother and child walking past and uh something caught their eye i think it was cannibals of Candyland because there's this like uh candy lady with with cotton candy hair it's pink and she's got like a lollipop belly but she's naked she has gumdrops for nipples and mm -hmm. and is you know got vicious teeth that are bleeding um little kid attracted that and the mother c covered her eyes and 
ushered her away from our table saying, those are bad people. <laughs> those are bad people? <laughs> those are bad people. I was like, oh my God. That is All so we could funny. do is laugh. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny because it was probably, I mean, obviously it was the nudity. And that's so strange to me that, you know, it was probably the next table over. It was like a dude with like a machine gun or something like that. And the mother was probably okay with that. But it's like, oh, nudity, watch out. You gotta be, gotta hide the, hide it from the children or, or what have you. Oh yeah, don't even get me started on that. We actually had one of our posters taken down. Um, you know, we hung up a promotional poster at an event due to uh, obscenity, nudity. I don't know. We have we have cuss words in our titles. We have a lot of nudity on our covers and when they informed me that they had to take that poster down due to obscenity i i was like, <laughs> like wait, what? i was like what 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 are you talking about what nudity and uh you know it was this is a painting of mm-hmm. a, a woman like i i didn't even think about it being offensive mm-hmm. um so that's that's my perspective. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I, it, art, god damn it. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, that's so crazy to me. But I, it's also, I mean, it's I think it's worked out in uh, in in Bizarro's favor, right? I mean, people know those covers, especially you know Deadite covers, pretty uh, extreme, you know. But that's what they do. I mean, like, why would you? Like, I don't understand the concept of yeah. having a an extreme horror imprint and not having like you know, yeah, nas- nasty shit on the cover. <laughs> Yeah, we've gotten some backlash for the Deadite Press covers, which I think are awesome, um, from some of the more conservative, uh, old-school readers, I guess, that mm-hmm. don't want people to know what nasty stuff they're reading. They want, like, uh, hands on the cover. Yeah. Mysterious. <laughs> it's, it's just the book is called, you know, Genital Grinder, but the cover is just two people kissing. You're like, oh, yeah. that's sweet. <laughs> I think we wouldn't even publish it under the name Genital Grinder, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's just like, but, but it's like in cursive. I'm just picturing Genital Grinder in cursive. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of our uh, approach to publishing is that I think the title and the and the cover are, are valuable re- real estate. I mean, people say that don't judge a book by its cover for a reason because people do. Mm-hmm. So why not give them something to judge that will bring them to the right conclusion? Exactly. You know? Yeah, totally. I mean, um, and if you go into a bookstore and you just see v- uh, variations on the kind of pastel, there's a bird on the cover type thing, and then you see a, a cover that has... Um, an ass goblin on it. I mean, yeah. which one are you going to notice? <laughs> you know, like even if you're appalled by it, you're like, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to look at it. I'm just yeah. going to see what's going oh, on. Let's talk about that ass goblin cover for a minute. Yeah. Cause that's kind of a funny story. When Cameron Pierce said that he was going to write a book called ass goblins of Auschwitz, <laughs> then he wrote it. And it actually is a really fucked up, fascinating story. There, he did an interview before it was published with some people that were they immediately latched on to that ass goblin. What's an ass goblin? And uh, then Cameron ended up rewriting the whole book actually because of how how much mm, 
fascination was generated by the concept of an ass goblin. <laughs> so the, the ultimate book ended up being more ass goblin-y than it originally was. Yeah. And uh, then when it came to the cover art, I asked him, I was like, okay, you've described these creatures that are these kind of aliens that live on another planet. Uh, it's a concentration camp planet. And they literally are like asses, you know, <laughs> a butts that have eyes and their eyes are on sort of like uh what tentacle eye stalks you yeah, know their yeah. hair and um anywho cameron sketched the character and i hope i still have that sketch somewhere it'd be fun to share sometime um and i sent that over to uh uh we had an, an artist do a rendition of cameron's sketch and um it's just absolutely amazing and charming. If you if you haven't seen that book, you have to go look it up. Yeah, yeah, no, it's awesome. It's super. Have uh, I, I love I love these stories. Are, are there any other covers that kind of come to mind? That uh, there's one in particular that comes to mind that really kind of like launched a book into outer space, right? I'm thinking uh, of Patrick Wensink's uh, Broken Piano for President cover the the Japanese body that's a great story can you tell that story yeah well that was another uh kind of funny funny story about learning as you go I guess Uh because this was um you know Matthew Rivera who's really well known for his cover designs now but got his start designing covers for us um was working on the book cover for that and um Cameron Pierce who was the editor of that book decided that it should have a whiskey label cover. So he wanted the cover to look like, like the label of a Jack Daniels bottle or something. Um, so Rivera took that idea and ran with it and essentially just took the exact label of the Jack yeah. Daniels whiskey bottle and modified it a little bit. And, um, and it looked rad, but then about a year into its publication, maybe, I can't remember how long it was exactly, uh, they sent us a cease and desist letter because I guess, you know, obviously trying to protect their brand came across this image that was clearly a ripoff of their whiskey bottle cover. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a very uh, genial Southern manner, just said, you know, we noticed this and it seems like a really cool book, but would you mind changing the book cover because that's our brand? Uh, you know, we'll pay for the expense of changing it and, um, you know, take this one out of print, please. Which <laughs> ended up going viral as the nicest cease and desist letter <laughs> ever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those letters <laughs> from, uh, Kentucky. Wait, is it Kentucky? Where are they from? Yeah, it's Kentucky, I think. Kentucky. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and actually, uh, Wensink was living in Kentucky at the time, and he and I think it was even addressed like, "Dear neighbor, you know, <laughs> we can tell that you really like our whiskey." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so we wrote them back and said, "No, you don't have to pay us anything. Of course, we'll change that." And mea culpa, we didn't mean to just you know rip you off. Right. We were just trying to to give it that flavor. And, uh, so 
so yeah, we changed the book cover on that. And then um, actually went and approached, Cameron went and approached a local distillery and asked them if for permission to recreate their whiskey bottle. Uh, It was Bull Run um, Mm. is the distillery in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, and they loved the idea. So they gave us express permission to rip off their label and do a second printing of it um, like that. And even uh, gave us a bunch of, of spirits to do a book launch and, uh, it was, it was pretty fun, but yeah, there was a lot of attention around that cease and desist letter. And, um, so it, it was more Jack Daniels, uh, Jack Daniels being really cool was yeah. the story, yeah. but, uh, we, we benefited from that because the book got a lot of attention. Right. And I think one of the, one of the major takeaways from that, that I get at least is, you know, you said it was around about maybe a year into publication and it's just it's one of those things with especially with small presses you just you never know like that's what i try to tell authors a lot is like you just you don't know when something is gonna click i'm almost a fan of um like you know just putting the book out because i think people have a very um kind of sort of rigid idea about how book promotion is supposed to work and I think one thing that I learned from you guys is that um, there's just, and by you guys, I just mean the Bizarros in general, but you also specifically, um, you know, you just, you, you have to put the book out and then you have to get creative with it and you have to just try different things. And there's no set, um, I don't, do you do, do you send out to specific venues or it's different for every book, right? Uh, yeah. Well, um the key thing to selling a book is for the book itself to be worth people reading in the first place obviously and if you can identify before it comes out exactly who the right reader is for that book then you can think about how to let them know that it exists Hmm. And there are many, many different ways of doing that. Um, currently, because of Eraserhead Press uh, being around for so long, the press itself has a reputation. So a lot of our promotion is about promoting the press and making sure that people are aware that we're releasing books on a monthly basis and they can get them from us. Um, but uh, so we have our books announced pretty far in the future right now. I mean, I think I have up for pre-order books all the way through September. Mm. And uh, based on the book, we decide on where to send it to. And I'm always trying to learn more about marketing and promotion. That's like one of my hobbies, essentially, is uh, just staying up to date on that stuff because it's always fluid. It's always changing. Nothing ever works the same twice. Mm -hmm. So um, that's certainly something that authors should bear in mind is knowing that there's no like silver bullet. There's nothing that you can like steps you can do to copy, to um, repeat the success of things that you're seeing around you. Um, But there are some consistent keys and, um, that's why a long time I've been focused on books that 
are that have a high concept are easy to explain in a sentence or two and once people hear those sentences they immediately have to read it yeah um that's why i focus on creating interesting cover designs and you know hitting on interesting titles all of those things make an impact on a person's first impression of the work so those are are really essential when it comes to packaging the book the right way and then you know, getting it out to people who are tastemakers, who are influencers, who are the type of people that readers are paying attention to when it mm-hmm. comes to finding new books. Because um, ultimately, people read things because they've been rec- recommended to them by people that they trust and are friends with. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's the primary way that people find new books to read. There's also just running across it in a bookstore or mm-hmm. in a library or online. But, yeah, so you want to just get your get your work out there in as many different places as possible and let people know what it is you have and why they might like it. I hope I'm not giving away, like, too many uh, secrets or anything, but I know, that, I know that Cameron and I think Carlton Mellick also, don't they do title, sometimes do titles first and then write books based on the titles or am I getting that wrong? Yeah, that's not a secret. I mean, that that's a, a thing they got from um, Ray Bradbury, I think, actually. Oh, okay. And uh, it's a technique where you can brainstorm titles and what Carlton does is he makes a list of words, of words that sound appealing to him or that are interesting in some way and then... Uh, you know, smashes them together in ways that excite him to write something. And then then he thinks about, so once he has a title that is appealing, then he tries to come up with the most interesting story for that title. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes he has already a story that he wants to tell and then does that to figure out what to call it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's how he came up with, with titles such as razor wire pubic hair or cuddly cuddly holocaust or um uh tumor fruit or parasite milk you know all of those were oh parasite milk is word really good. yeah i hadn't heard that is that a new one yeah that one came out last fall oh okay uh-huh. okay yeah, yeah. I, was, I was gonna say that doesn't sound familiar because the last one that i remember yeah was the oh my Man. god that book is an amazing book. You should check it out. It's about, do you know that guy, Andrew Zimmern, who does bizarre foods where he travels around the world and he eats, he experiences culture through food. You know I'm, what I'm talking about? I, I'm, I'm not familiar, but I get, yeah, I get the idea. Okay. So, uh, this book takes that concept and, and makes it in a terrestrial. So it's set in sort of like a weird future where people can travel to under other planets and there's, Andrew Zimmern, the same to experience their culture through their food. And uh, so the the main character is actually his camera guy. And they're going on a scouting mission with one of the producers of the show to this other planet. Um, And he's never been off world before. So it's kind of like a stranger in a strange land kind of a situation. And he doesn't really know anything about... uh, that planet or the people and you learn it along with him and the parasite milk is a really disgusting aspect 
of the book. Yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. I don't want to give away because just the that concept proposed is uh-huh. enough to hopefully stimulate you. So, but no, that's a great like, example. Uh, that's I definitely a- recommend it. Yeah, that's a great example. See, and listeners, like, see how that was engaging and you want to know more about that? Like that, I, I feel like so much work can be done uh, in the beginning, like by just by having like a good, like you said, good cover, good title, good concept that you can put into one line. And then after that, I mean, I guess, you know, you do want to send it out for review and things like that, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure how well reviews sell books. Um I think that, like you said, it's it's friends telling other friends about it, like person to person, which can get. Well, tricky. that's what a review is. You well, know, sort, I mean, sort um, of because I, I no, I think there's a little bit of a distinction, right? Because there's a, it's somebody that you might not really know, um, or somebody that you might not really have built up a, a trust with, sort of. And there's also a kind of a lot of extremely positive reviews online because a lot of people who review books are also writers and so there's kind of a political thing that you can get into there so i don't know if there's as much trust right as like somebody like your buddy handing you a book and saying dude this shit is fucked up you're gonna dig this right yeah yeah well definitely the best reviews are the ones that tell you why you're gonna want to read something Mm -hmm. you know more than just the plot of the book or that person's individual experience with it is, you know, good reviewers know how to to talk about the elements of the book, such as the the tone and the style and the uh, themes and and the emotional impact that the book is going to have on the reader, and that's what will really get through to somebody to say not just that that this is uh, an interesting story, but this book made me cry, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Well, it's like the, it's like Amazon reviews where if it's good or bad and you know, the review is just good. Those one word good or one word. Okay. Or what? And it's, it's like, I don't understand why anybody (laughs) would take the time to even do that, but okay. Fair enough. Um, but, um, oh yeah. So I guess the interesting thing about, you know, person to person sharing too, uh, is that it, it can be a little bit, difficult to sort of judge how many people have actually read a book you know if people are lending books out or if they're checking them out from the library so i think that um, authors can sometimes be hung up a little bit on sales numbers when that might not be a good representation but one of the one of the things that i think has always stuck with me and i haven't been sticking to it very well is that if you want to find out how many people have read your current book write another book so it's always about sort of uh, writing the next book. And I think mm. that because I think that you'll be able to kind of see, you know, if people are handing books to each other and you're building a kind of following, I think that the the best way and this has always been kind of the uh, eraser head sort of ethos is always like if you're not sort of satisfied with what this book did, then it's time to write the next book. And I don't know. That's just something that I want people to know. Yeah, well, uh, that makes me think of two things. So first, when you were talking about writers being disappointed in their sales or not really having a clear idea of how many books have sold, um, what I would like to remind writers is that every single time a person reads your book, every one person that reads it is super, super important. Mm -hmm. Like, 
I mean, hopefully you're writing a book to communicate something to other people. Yeah. And there's so many things that you're competing with for people's attention that even if one person picks up that book, that might change that person's day or that person's life. And that is huge, you know? So that's something to be proud of. And I think that every single book sold is an achievement because that means that person bought a book or read that book versus watch that TV show mm -hmm. or that movie or that video game or that article online about somebody being pissed off. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, they, they put their time and energy into that and that's something to respect. And I think that writers who cultivate that healthy respect for individual readers are the ones that are going to be able to see a path to success because if you value each person that reads your book, that sort of attitude is going to influence your work, the way that you, the, what you put of yourself into your work and how you interact with your readers. And that's just going to become a magnet for more readers. Yes. I love um, that. That's so so it has to start with one person following you, you know, and even if that person is your best friend, like the, if you have one best friend or you have a hundred, I mean, it really only takes like a hundred super fans mm. to, mm -hmm. uh, to launch a writing career. So you got to focus on each one, one at a time. Basically, yeah, I remember I would be getting my kind of uh, royalty statements from Jeremy at Swallowdown. <clears throat> and, you know, some months it would be like, you know, you sold 12 copies or something like that. And I was always like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. And then, um, you know, I would have an author, and I, I understand where this impulse comes from, so I'm not necessarily shaming this particular author, but I would have, you know, an author who I would go to and say, oh, you sold 40 copies, you know, 40 copies. And they would be like, uh, I wish it, I wish it had done better. And they would get like depressed. And I'd be like, yeah. are you, are you crazy? That 40 people is, is huge. I have a prescription for that person. Hmm. Go on a street corner and try to sell your books to people passing by. Mm. And or <laughs> go to an art fair or sign up for a table at a convention and actually sell people in person your work. And then you'll understand a little bit more about what attracts people and what does not attract people. And you will also receive that gratification of people's reactions, because mm -hmm. I think that the person who's upset by, you know, only selling 40 copies it's only a number to them. They're not seeing human beings behind that. Mm. If you see, if you go to an event, maybe you only sell three copies of your book in a whole weekend, but I will tell you, that's going to be a highlight for you. You're going to love it selling that book to three people. And especially if you get people who come back to you the next year and say, Oh my God, I read your book last year and it's amazing. What do you have out now? Uh, you know that you need to get more personal interaction with people who are reading your work if you're feeling upset about that kind of thing totally and the the other uh the other maybe to help you pick up the other thread the other thing we were talking about was writing the next book i don't know if you have mm, mm -hmm, thoughts mm -hmm. about that one thanks right so when it comes to writing the next book okay if you are not improving in your writing then you're doing something wrong so you know every time that you write something new it's going to be better than the last thing so you can't look back at old stuff and be disappointed in it every writer cringes at their early work mm -hmm. um and 
and you can't go back and change that stuff. And I know that every writer I've ever worked with a few years down the line looks at that and goes, Oh my God, it's completely flawed. And, you know, obviously I have some sensitivity to that because, you know, before I let a book out there in the world in front of other people, I do my best to make sure that it's satisfying right. to me, you know? So, so you're kind of, you're kind of uh, like, excuse me? No, I thought it was well, pretty good. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I do also see that angle because sure. like I also learn things or sometimes I know that it's flawed, but I know that they do not have the skills yet to mm -hmm. fix it. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to leave it as it is because mm -hmm. it's good enough, you mm -hmm. know? Um, like you have to pick your battles when it comes to editing stuff sometimes. Totally. Um, but yeah, I mean, so... So one good thing about writing new stuff is that you can take what you learned from your uh, from your previous experience and apply it to the next thing. But uh, more than that, when it comes to the audience and attracting their attention, um, yes, I believe that people are interested in writers and in artists in following a writer or an artist more so than they are just picking up random books. At least I'm that way. I mean, yeah. I kind of, when I latch on to somebody's work that I like, then I follow their releases and I, I get excited when I know that there's going to be something new from them. Um, so a strategy for creating your career is to make sure that you're producing work on a regular basis so that you have something for people to keep coming back to mm -hmm. and to pay attention to and to latch on to. I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard work yeah. to do that. And you have to be somebody who's able to to work under pressure, I guess, mm -hmm. because I know some people who get really, they close down when they start to think about, oh, I have to, I have an audience that's expecting greatness from me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So you have to kind of compartmentalize and put that aside, but really keep your drive to producing content for them because it's just like any other form of media, you know, you need to create new valuable content to totally. to uh sustain an audience yeah i think that one author that did that really recently was for me was gary j shipley so i bought <laughs> werewolf by him and i was yeah completely blown away and then i bought this uh poem called serial kitsch which was him uh taking a bunch of interviews with serial killers and mashing them all up into an epic poem uh and then i read the unyielding which you put out on a razor head and just and then after that, I went back to Dreams of Amputation, and then the one that he did based on that um, uh, begotten, not begotten, was it begotten? The Elias Merhiga, that black and white creepy movie. Anyway, yeah. Anyway. So, I, I mean, that is a black and white creepy movie, but I don't know about the name of the yeah. person you mentioned. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I'm just, yeah. But, uh, but basically with <laughs> him, you know, like with, with his books, uh, and he releases them, I would say, pretty quickly. I think Werewolf came out. Of, of maybe six months before the unyielding did so he i, I like that pace carlton Mellick the is unyielding. The same yeah and then yeah and the unyielding is of course like just extremely disturbing i think that what he was kind of able to do in that book was take some of his more um sort of surreal and abstract stuff because a lot of his his work is extremely obtuse and i think he was able to kind of put it into a a really good story actually um so I guess as a plug for an Eraserhead book, I would say The Unyielding was fucking awesome. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm glad to hear you uh, react to that one. Um, Gary Shipley, he, I, this was the first book that I worked on with him, and I agree he's got a really interesting voice that people should pay attention to. It's, you mentioned um, earlier when we were talking that there are different versions of fun, and fun for me is feeling extremely uncomfortable, and there is something about the unyielding that just it's like there's a tone to the whole thing. You feel very strange uh-huh. when you read it. You're like, oh, I'm it is. I'm, I feel. I know gross. what you're talking about. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to define, but yeah, it is. It just makes you feel gross, yeah. and in, in in like the most interesting way. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of the books that I publish are that way because mm-hmm. I I agree. I like that unsettling feeling, um, and things that are viscerally different mm-hmm. um you know i'm i'm drawn to all sorts of weirdness being a child of the late 70s and my parents being a, being involved in like the new age movement really heavily i was exposed to a lot of different ideas and and strange people when i was a kid you know we went to uh shamans and uh native american flute players and east indian uh um, astrologers and I learned to meditate when I was four years old and I had adult people who would talk to me as a kid as if I were an adult and tell me stories about fairies and and ghosts and things that they completely believe in you know Mm -hmm. and uh so that was kind of like my early experience of a reality that was kind of just off center from the mainstream yeah and uh so so being planted there, my mind just grew into like all of the weird and dark mm-hmm. and strange and delightful and beautiful and happy places. So, uh, so yeah, whenever a writer is able to affect me and, and stimulate my imagination and make me curious and make me feel something that I don't even quite know how to define, that is talent to me. That's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it can be anything. It could be funny. It could just be weird. It could be sad yeah. or it could be gross, you know, like anything that kind of like, because I think that, yeah. you know, technology and, and just modern living has made us all kind of like very numb. So sort of yeah. anything that sort of shakes you out of that, I think is super, super important. Um, I agree. But I don't. I, this has been absolutely fantastic. This is probably my new every every new podcast is like my new favorite podcast because I think that um, we're we're kind of unpacking something here and we're getting like super super good advice. So I'll wrap this up and just say thank you so much for your time, Rose. And I hope to talk and see you talk to you and see you soon. Thanks. It was my pleasure, and I miss you. It's great to catch up with you about all these things. All right, that was the 111th episode with Rose O'Keefe. I hope you got something out of that. I know I sure did. Apparently, upstairs, uh, the people that I live with are defying God and nature by uh, keeping their TVs going during this lightning storm. I unplugged everything because I'm kind of paranoid in that respect. But back on the topic of the show, I hope you did enjoy that. I'm going to start moving towards um, interviews like that. There was a period of time there where I was uh, starting to get a lot of queries from agents, which I think is pretty cool. I think it kind of like 
tickled all my little attention buttons. Basically, I had to go back and find what I was interested in, so I've been turning down a lot of uh, offers now, which sucks because I do love getting free books, but I just want to talk about shit that interests me, so I've just been reaching out to authors through Twitter and Facebook and places like that to see if they want to come on the show, because I think, like you'll notice in this Rose conversation, and of course like in the El Nash conversation and B.R. Yeager and on back through the line, when I'm interested in the person's work, then I suddenly become a lot more kind of engaged. And I feel less like a interviewer who's like talking about a new release and more like somebody who uh, is looking to get at some kind of deeper truth or, you know, writing hack. We're not using hack anymore, right? Is a word. I can stop doing that. Good. So anyway, so a lot more indie writers. I have a lot of uh, interesting questions for for some pretty fucking weird dudes and ladies. And uh, I think that it will fill a niche within the writer podcast market, which, you know, there's a great one for horror fiction. It's called This Is Horror. There's a great one for sort of indie moving into sort of like big indie interviews. And that's uh, other people with Brad Listy. So I was trying to think like, I don't really want to be like, Oh, there's also, there's Booked, of course, which Booked covers a lot of uh, crime fiction, and they actually do book reviews and things of that nature. So I was kind of trying to figure out where I fit in in this bigger picture, and I think it's with, um, yeah, just interviews with uh, the indiest of the indie, talking about that goddamn indie life. On that note, before I leave you, I will just remind you that I do uh, freelance edits. I've Luckily, this month, uh, it it picked back up because I really got a fire lit under my ass when I had absolutely zero projects for June. That is very scary. But I figured out that if I just kind of talk to people about it and promote myself, then I actually get work. So that's what I'm doing here at the very end. Uh, If you have a manuscript, preferably in crime, mystery, science fiction, horror, or bizarro that you're looking to get edited, uh, do holler at me. My Twitter handle is at BRBJDO. My Instagram handle is at BRBJDO. Feel free to contact me through either one of those social media apps, or you can email me at jdavidosborne at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the 111th episode. We're getting up there. Of the JDO show featuring Rose O'Keefe. The head honcho, the person in charge, one of the godmothers of Bizarro, Rose O'Keefe.